I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. My guest for today is Virgie Tovar. I'm going to highly encourage each one of you to pause this podcast right now. Do come back after, but pause the podcast if you have not seen Virgie's TEDx talk. It is an amazing talk and it will make you really appreciate at the end of this podcast, what she's talking about. Virgie's TED Talk, Lose Hate, Not Wait. Watch the first two minutes of it. This will all make sense as you hear the end of our interview today on the podcast. Then I want you all to go back and listen to the rest of her TED Talk because it's amazing. All right, everyone, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am honored and I am a little emotional about our guest for today because of the work that she does. I would like to welcome all of you Virgie Tovar to our show. Virgie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. You and I were talking a little before the interview started, and I'm feeling very emotional because the work is so big. It like I don't even know where to start. It's so big. So could you start first by introducing yourself to the listeners? Tell them about the incredible work that you're doing, and then we're just going to go from there. Yes. I mean, again, thank you for having me. Um, I'm so, I'm so appreciative of your emotion. (laughs) It's a very emotional conversation. I mean, my work is really focused on weight discrimination. Um, so I'm really focused on working to end weight discrimination, um, and also help to educate and help heal the people who experience it. I've been doing this work for a little over a decade. And in reality, it started with my own life. You know, I come from, and I've been excavating this for a long time. I I mean, I'm now realizing I come from an intergenerational fat family. I also come from an intergenerational family with eating disorders. I mean, it's just, it's, as I look back on it, you know, I think when you're in a larger body, because the culture expects you to diet and expects you to do basically do whatever you have to do to not have the body that you have. This is a 
this is a runway to an eating disorder. Um, and so, you know, it's not surprising to see that in my family history and to go back and look at moments that feel in my mind, almost just, this is just what it's like life for a fat person to look back with the critical lens of eating disorders and say, no, that that's not normal life for anyone. Um, and yet, right. Like we live in a culture right now where the belief that truly, like if you, if you have to starve yourself, to attempt to become a thin person, to attempt to have the quote unquote correct body, which in our culture is only a thin body, um, then you go ahead and do it. You know, the ends justify the means. So, I mean, really, uh, I mean, I grew up learning fat phobia, experiencing fat phobia, which, you know, just to define it is um, essentially negative cultural attitudes and behaviors um, targeted at people in larger bodies that have implications from, um, the wage gap, um, plus size women make less money than straight size women. Um, plus size people are less likely to get preventive medical care. Um, and, uh, are, are more likely to experience, you know, employee, employee discrimination or less likely to be promoted experience, uh, romantic discrimination, right? There's all kinds of implications to this. And, um, also as a result of, you know, overt, discrimination and stigma, which is legal uh, in the United States in 48 out of 50 states, um, it leads to things like physiological um, long-term negative effects. Uh, This is something that kind of, you know, any group that experiences stigma is going to have physiological negative long-term effects. But anyway, I was someone who was a target of fat phobia for I mean, basically, like, since I was five years old, I felt very much like something was wrong with my body um, and that I needed to change it. And the way to change it was to, um, you know, basically restrict food. And uh, I ended up having basically sort of an anorexic style um, eating disorder until uh, until I was about, um, I don't know, probably mid-20s when I, by accident, ended up meeting someone who was fat positive and dating that person. And that was really transformative for me. Um, and then kind of, and then I was introduced to fat activism, basically a group of mostly, um, queer women in larger bodies who were sort of refusing to accept the idea that something was wrong with them. They introduced me to the idea that fat phobia is real and that we don't have to change that the culture should change. And that fat people can have these amazing, wonderful, beautiful, meaningful lives. And that concept completely changed my life. Um, So I was in grad school studying how weight discrimination impacts gender trajectories in women of color. And I find this group of people and it just really blows my mind. And then I basically dedicated my life to the the causes and and the things that I learned when I met that group of people and I was like, well, what would it look like if we weren't the only ones who knew what if, what if we shared this with the whole culture? Um, and so I started to write books about it and do lectures on the idea of fat liberation and fat activism. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of what I do now. I mean, now it's like, I'm still doing this about 10, 11 years later, 
I've written many books on the topic. Like I've written a book called You Have the Right to Remain Fat, um, a book called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. Um, I have a new book called um, The Body Positive Journal. Um, I lecture and I, I train, like I do corporate trainings and I take plus size women to other countries and travel and hang out with them. And I do retreats. Um, and uh, I mean, basically any anything around sort of this topic, I, I will happily basically do it. Um, so that's kind of my bio. Listening to your bio, I was like, I got to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. When when we talk about some of the biases, I mean, we're talking, like you said, women in larger bodies make significant or make less money. Um, I heard you say in, or I read in one of your books, I don't remember, between nine to $19,000 a year is the difference in pay. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, right, researchers have tried to figure out what is this phenomenon about. Um, I mean, right, I mean, basically it's, it's weight discrimination, but how does it look, right? And, and they discovered that it was actually um, that in general, plus size women, and I would say by extension, plus size people um, are funneled into more physically laborious care-oriented jobs and smaller bodied people are funneled into client-facing jobs, which are often desk jobs um, or higher paying jobs. So it just, it was kind, it really is a manifestation of like these, I mean, the, the example that one academic sort of put, put out, put forward in a paper on this topic was um, if there's two jobs at a paper company, um, a thin person is likelier to get the sales job and a plus size person is likelier to get a job, um, sort of in like the shipping department of it. Right. Like, sort of, and, and I think there's something to be said about, it's not always that the plus size person is applying for the sales job and then getting this other job that's lower paying and more physically laborious. It's that a lifetime of being told that your body should not be visible to others and that you are offensive to people just by your very existence might create internal bias towards what kinds of jobs. And I mean, and, I, and going back to my own family, it really mapped onto my mother um, really wanting to work, but only wanting to work, for example, the graveyard shift, only wanting to work in the loading dock of a place. Um, like she only wanted to work when there were no people who could see her. Um, and so it really mapped onto my own experience growing up and watching my mother really struggle with visibility and how that's all part of the discrimination story. And it also creates the outcome, which is lower paying jobs, less access to medical care, less accessibility to, to therapeutic, less accessibility to so many things that it then keeps you stuck. I mean, it is just a vicious cycle that continues and predict can, can be the predictor of an outcome, which will then say it is your fault for your high blood pressure when there's and I'm just using high blood pressure as an example, when there are all these other stressors that are brought on because of the biases. It, did I say that correctly? Or I kind of want to say like, yes, I mean, absolutely. And um, right. As I was saying earlier, it, 
any group of people who experience stigma are going to have worse health outcomes than people who don't. And I think what is really complex is, and we have copious amounts of data that show this. We have copious amounts of data that shows this along the lines of race, along the lines of ability, along the lines of class. Um, Like in general, white people live longer than black people, just on average. And really it's like, we've been able to sort of do the science and it's like, yeah, it's because of the ongoing stress of racism. And I think what's complex about applying that science. So it's obviously relevant to, to weight discrimination. What is complicated about applying the science we know to weight discrimination is that weight discrimination is not seen as a political issue. It is seen as a health issue. So if we, if we understood weight discrimination as a human rights issue, which is what it is, if we understood it as a human rights issue, um, we would be able then to apply the findings we have about long-term stigma and negative health outcomes to this entire category of people who are experiencing stigma. But because there's a patent refusal on the culture's part and specifically the medical field's part to identify this as a human rights issue, to understand that, that, you know, there's, I mean, for me, right, not to get too into the weeds on this, but it's like when you have a group who's experiencing a, a massive amount of stigma and truthfully, right, because there's, there's no, there's not large scale acceptance of this as discrimination. The discrimination is overt. Um, it's it's both microaggressions, but it's also overt stigma. Um, and again, a lot of this is because it's completely legal to practice weight discrimination in most parts of the country. Um, so what what's what's really challenging to me, and truly what is quite sloppy. Um, on on the medical fields uh, part and a lot of other fields part um, is that if you have a group that's experiencing a massive amount of stigma and you accept that stigma creates negative health outcomes, there's no way for you to separate the health outcomes of a person who's experiencing stigma from like, you know, I mean, from like the lived reality of just being in their body. And I think really kind of um, it, 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 to me, when I think about, the ways in which fat bodies are pathologized right now, it reminds me, it's, it's, it's literally, it's an absolute repetition of many moments throughout medical history that we went through this moment with race, right? If you think, if you go back to like racial science, like the racist science, um, not so long ago in our, in our history in the West, right? Um, it was the same belief system that you're just inferior. Something is just wrong with you. Something is just, you know, you have these, you, you're just kind of inherently inferior. And that is what we've decided, right? And there's, and there's no kind of contextualization of this. There's no, right. Like, and I, and I've seen this happen. This has happened with people of color. This has happened with women. This has happened with people who are neurodivergent. Um, and now it's happening with, People on larger bodies, they're they're literally almost identical. And I think there's this sort of this almost like cultural amnesia about not really knowing that we're we're just in the exact same cycle with a slightly different characteristic, but we're reliving this over and over and over again as as a as a culture. 
can you share the story? And again, forgive me, I don't know if I read it, heard it on an interview or what it was about the woman, Abby, who you knew who went to the doctors with really severe stomach pains and they were basically like, mm, lose weight and come back. Can you can you finish that story for me? Yeah, I mean, Abby was um, was someone I met in that fat activism community. And honestly, she's not, since then, she's not the only plus size woman I've met who had cancer, suspected she had cancer, told a doctor or perhaps many doctors that they that she suspected that she had cancer. And, all, and many of them told her that she just had to lose weight. So Abby is just the first person I met. Um, she's not the last person since I've been doing this work. Um, but with Abby, I believe she was in college when she started to have severe, um, really, really, really painful periods, um, really, really painful, like abdominal cramping. Um, and she talks about being really afraid and suspecting that something was really wrong and kind of knowing in her body that something was really wrong and going to the medical center at her college and this very, very slender doctor sort of almost condescendingly telling her how hard, how hard she knows it is to try and lose weight and how, you know, really at the end of the day though, that she probably has PCOS because she's in a larger body and that this is very common for people who are in larger bodies and have PCOS. And at the end of the day, she really just needs to lose weight and that these symptoms will go away. And for her, I, I don't know if she went to just that doctor, or if she went to got tried to get a second opinion, but essentially she left the experience of trying to get help with a sense that, you know, something was wrong with her, that she would, but she basically, that her calls for help were not being met with, you know, belief. Um, and she, and then, so she never, she didn't go to a doctor again for three years. And she talks about how the cancer grew, had this opportunity to grow for three years in that time. Um, and then, and then at that point, right, sort of, uh, she, I, I mean, I, I think the symptoms had gotten so bad that maybe she, I can't quite remember how the story ends, but it was like, I mean, Abby is still alive. So, I mean, the story ends with like, you know, some, some form of recovery, but, um, but it really is shocking and terrifying that this is not an uncommon story. Maybe, maybe it wasn't cancer for everybody, but I've talked to people. I mean, I even have story, my own stories where I'm like, I'm having back pain. I don't know what's going on. And my doctor is not only, I mean, I I recently was doing a, a talk with, um, some of the medical care providers at my alma mater. Um, and I told them a story about coming in with back pain and, you know, having this conversation with a doctor where she, she's just patently, like in retrospect, I'm realizing she's refusing to give me tools. She's refusing to give me like, here are some stretches you could do here are some things that you could like here, you could maybe sleep in this way, right? Like stuff I learned from a chiropractor later. Um, and she was refusing to even offer pain medication, like nothing. 
There was nothing. There was no compassion, no interest. It was like, you have to become a thin person before I will give you any interventions because only at that point will you have shown me that you are trying to be healthy. And only at that point, I think this is where the bias comes in. And I, you know, only at that point, do you deserve to live a pain-free life? Um, and it's really shocking and scary and sad again, to, to know that that is the prevailing medical experience for people in larger bodies. And also when you go to the doctors, we are at an incredibly vulnerable state as is we're going saying I'm in pain. I don't feel well. I'm whatever it is. And then they add to this and a blame you and B give you an unrealistic goal to get to because we know diets don't work. And why would that be the first, what's the expression I'm looking for? The first plan of attack. I don't even know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like order of, yeah. yeah, Yeah. That's the first line of defense. Yeah. First line of defense. And so of course, like, of course you walk away. And the last thing you want to do is go back to another doctor when you're not feeling well. They are they're not deemed as safe for you. Again, why medical complications go on and on and on. Doctors do not make it a safe environment. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of how I think you're really speaking to the the cycles of bias occur. So I go into a doctor as a larger bodied person. I am met with disbelief and stigma or condescension, some basically version of I'm a bad patient. I leave with the sense that I'm a bad patient. We know from research that when a person is advised to restrict food or to diet from a doctor, they are likely to go home and binge which is a normal response. It's it's a comfort response. It's sort of like you're being told something's wrong with you. Um, you're being told to restrict food. We know that restriction and binging are part of this part of the same cycle. So um, so anyway, and we know also that binging is very stressful for the person who's doing it. And so um, because like right, like the the results of binging is often painful. There's shame and all these kinds of stuff. Um, so you go in, you have this basically stigmatizing experience. This means that when you are having any kind of symptoms, the last thing you're trying to do is go to the doctor. So you are delaying care because you're expecting to be stigmatized yet again and not believed. Then what happens is if you do have something that is chronic, that is getting worse over time, you are going to wait until the absolute last minute to go in and have it treated, which now means that the doctor, that very same doctor who's the inspiration for this cycle having begun is now seeing you in an acute state of harm. And that bias in that doctor's mind is confirmed. This is a bad patient. Fat people are unhealthy. Fat people don't take care of themselves. Um, And then it all starts over again. So it's, there really is kind of this, and and you're right, like this, and this person is like in pain is very vulnerable to your point is experiencing probably more stigma from the doctor. And it just kind of keeps going. And it's like that over a lifetime. And you can kind of imagine how that would, again, I mean, there's so many 
things that create negative health outcomes in the story of weight discrimination, but not feeling like you can access medical care um, is a major part of, you know, some of the worst health outcomes that we see among any stigmatized group, but in this case, among people in larger bodies. And I think what you're talking about now, and and I, I changing gears just a tiny bit, is this is the, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're talking about in your activism work about, you know, equality for medical, you know, jobs, whatever it is, that's what you're doing, which is fat liberation, as opposed to body positivity, which is more about self feeling better in self. And and I hope this wasn't too big of a leap, but as you were talking about all the medical things and, and that's that's what, what you're doing for your work, can you describe the difference between the two? Because I think they get confused often. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, to be fair, right, when I think about liberation, liberation to me is almost a dream. Like, in the, like you know, I think, like, when we, if we, if we, like, for example, if we opened up the scope, and talked about almost like human liberation, right? Um, what might the world look like if we had every resource that we that we as human beings needed? What would we be capable of? And it's almost like this kind of utopic thing. I mean, and so I kind of want to say like, liberation is a very specific word to me when I'm talking about kind of the difference between fat activism and body positivity. Um, I'm talking about Actually, I have to let me break down um, a concept that's going to help make this difference make more sense. So, fat phobia manifests uh, in three dimensions it manifests intrapersonally, how we feel about ourselves, it manifests interpersonally, how other people treat us based on our body, and it manifests institutionally or structurally. Um, the ease with which we can or cannot navigate society based on the size of our body. Um, so I find in general that when we're talking about fat activism or, I mean, a lot of, let's just use the word liberation. Um, we're really talking about the, we're talking about all three, but we're really focused on the institutional component. How do we create a society where people of all bodies can safely navigate the world, safely and meaningfully navigate the things that matter to them and the things that matter to their culture, so the, like to the culture, right? I mean, an example of that would be, um, right, like the institution of marriage, which, I mean, sure, we have, I think there's plenty of critiques to be had about that, but our culture really values marriage. Um, now, currently, it's very difficult. I mean, it's changed quite a bit very recently, but historically, try to find a wedding dress in a plus in plus size. Try and find a tuxedo in a larger size, right? Like the the literally the clothing required to be a participant in a very important cultural institution which is not available. Um, and so what does this say about who gets to be part of society, who gets to be part of these meaningful rituals? Um, and I would say, so, so, so in general, fat activism is, or fat liberation or body liberation, I would say, is on that level. Um, it's on the institutional level, primarily. And I would say body positivity is primarily on the intrapersonal 
Um, so I, I often say that the difference between the question, the fundamental core question of body positivity versus fat activism um, or fat liberation might be, right, body positivity's question is, how do I feel better about myself? And I would say fat activism or body liberation's question would be, how to create, how do we create a world in which all bodies can can safely exist? I, I don't know how, uh, again, I think I'm just emotional and really blown away by, by all of this. Um, how can we, how can anyone feel good about themselves when, as you and I were talking earlier, as would, I'm, I'm just horrified by this. When, again, going to the medical pro profession, right? Because the medical people know all, they're the ones we look up to, are putting quote unquote guidelines on obese, and I put that in air quotes, children to quote unquote reduce stigma, which right away you're, you're implying stigma. You're saying there's something wrong with them. And how does somebody who grows up from a very young age being told their body is wrong, how do they even get to anything about body positivity? I mean, I know I'm not making sense, Virgie. I'm just- no, you are making sense. I mean, it's like, how can you, I mean, it really, it goes back to the demand of the individual versus the demand on the society in which that individual is stigmatized. I mean, and, and I think you, what you're really getting at is the, you're getting to the limitations of personal resiliency, right? So it's like, I mean, and I, I, I want to say on the one hand, um, oh, like there, I, I'm, there's so many thoughts I'm having, right? Like on the one hand, I overall, like whenever I teach people fat positive principles and I teach them how to incorporate fat positivity into their lives, um, I always say, it's not fair that you have to do this work. I always say there are limitations to how far this can go in a society that is committed to stigmatizing you. And I say that, um, you know, like it, again, it, it's, 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 it's immoral and it's unethical on some level that, uh, that you're being forced to learn resiliency in the face of a, a very clear human rights issue. So I just kind of like, I lay out really clearly that, um, that I don't like having to do this and yet also, right. Like, and, and I'm, but I'm also a believer and the truth is right. All stigmatized groups have developed some kind of resiliency, um, with, within and among communities that are like aware of the fact that it's wrong what's happening on a societal level. And yet, I'm going to have as meaningful a life as possible with these constraints. And so I think there's lots of levels of morality here. Like at the end of the day, right, it's immoral that any group should have to learn resiliency in the face of a systemic failure. That is not fair. And yet, right, like is the alternative to kind of just stop and lay down and take it. Um, and so I think like, it, it's an impossible decision. It's like a rock in a hard place. And so I kind of want to say, right, like, um, I agree with you on, on one level, uh, on another level, I have seen the power of people adopting fat positive principles in their own lives, um, or body positive principles in their own lives. And so 
I think it is kind of like this uh, very inappropriate ask that people, um, you know, like themselves in spite of, a, I mean, I really, and I often, I often use the metaphor of like, oh, a tidal wave. Like you as an individual are standing in the face of something that is so big and so historical and so complex and disgusting and layered, right? Like when you think about the history of diet culture, there's the history of eugenics, there's the history of racism, there's the history of sexism. I mean, it's like all, it's very long in the making. Um, and uh, so it's like, it's an individual standing in the face of a tidal wave and trying to hold back the impacts of that tidal wave, right? It's, it's like, it, it really is kind of an Olympian task. Um, so, uh, but yeah, to your point, right, there's a really big commitment on the culture's part to right because the, the whole point of I mean oh god it's like there's just, I mean, there's just again there's just so many layers to this like the, the way that our culture treats weight and and people in larger bodies in particular is completely committed to blaming people in different bodies for the body that they have for not having the standardized body that this culture is committed to believing is the only correct body. Um, and, and so, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's really what, that, that's really what's happening. Like, how do you thrive in that? I would say that there are limitations to how much you can thrive in that. Well, I also think it goes so deep, meaning can you share about what it was like for you when and, and I'm sort of telling part of the story, but you've talked about when you were growing up, it wasn't even talked about when you were like playing with friends, who played the male part, who played the female part. When you were watching movies, what was represented as these little feminine girls and like, even as you're walking through the world, and this is where, you know, where we're we're being bombarded all the time by images all the time by images and not even aware of it can you share a little bit about what that was like for you and you even talked about that there were times and and I don't know if this is like a literal but there's even like gender confusion because of the way that you were being treated growing up and and can you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean that was ultimately like the experiences of gender confusion that I had growing up were really like what I was studying when I was, you know, doing research on this in graduate school. Like I was really, you know, I mean, basically growing up, um, whenever, like, you know, I was around all girls, like pretty much like most of my, you know, you know, at that age, like when you're in elementary school, there's quite a lot of gender policing and gender line stuff. So like boys are boys and they hang out with boys. Girls are, this is what a girl is. They hang out with girls, right? Um, so I was hanging out with all girls at that time. Um, but we would reenact stories, like heterosexual stories that we were seeing on television or reading about in books. Like the book uh, the book series I'm thinking of specifically is The Babysitter's Club. Um, so one, one uh, year, my best friend that year 
was a really small person and every day at lunch would reenact the one of the romances, the primary romance in the Babysitter's Club series, which was between Marianne and Logan. And every day there was no negotiation at all. It was unspoken. I was supposed to play Logan and she always got to play Marianne. And it was, and I remember again, there was not even like a negotiation or a discussion. It was just understood that that was the role that I would play. And there were moments where I could feel myself trying to build up the courage to ask if we could swap roles and knowing internally that was ridiculous. Yeah. Like knowing that it was going to be knowing that the request to be, to play, play the girl was going to be met with. Yeah. That's just not believable though. Um, and just moments throughout my life, kind of like the, you know, all of these, there were a lot of confusing moments like that. Like that was a moment where I was like, okay, so I'm, I have the body of a man, but I am a girl. I feel like I'm a girl, but like, I'm getting all these conflicting messages. So like when we go, when we would go shopping for clothes for me, I couldn't fit into anything in the girl section. So a lot of times I would have to go to the male section, like the young men section. And that was really confusing to me. Um, another big one was like, you know, I was watching on television and reading about ways that, you know, women were treated and they were often treated like dainty flowers. They were often, you know, they're like boys and men were genteel towards women. Um, and that was not my experience. I was sort of treated more like I was kind of tough and like I had um, thick skin and uh, and that I could withstand like more physical and emotional pain than my thin girlfriends. And you know, like boys would sort of roughhouse with me a little bit, the way that I saw them roughhouse with each other and not with girls. And I mean, and, and I and it's just it's really fascinating how my education and fat phobia was so tied up in misogyny and, and rape culture, in fact. And they're, they're sort of like, I mean, it's, I've, I'm still trying to unravel, but I was learning all of those things all at once because a lot of that phobia, the way that I learned it was about male desire. And, and if I was not desired by men, um, it was because I was fat. And if I'm not desired by men, then men are targeting me and I'm not safe. So it, it's like, there's all of this. It's just so gross and, and, and sort of like messy, you know, those are understatements, gross and messy. I mean, it is, it is, it is horrific and, uh, and unbelievable. So let me, let me ask you, what is it? Okay. Here's I'm like, where do I want to go with this? When you give talks, do you ever talk with parents and like, or do you parents that come up to you and say, my child lives in a larger body? Should I, you know, what do I do? They're being made fun. Like, how do you, how do you help these people? And and forgive me if that is such a silly question. Oh, no, it's not a silly question. I mean, I work with parents. Um, I don't, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like I've worked with parents in the capacity of um, mostly around destigmatizing food and, and getting food shame out of their house. 
Um, like I have a podcast called Rebel Eaters Club where we talk a lot about food and destigmatizing food. Um, and so I I did I did an online workshop with a friend um about food positivity and introducing food positive principles into your home with small children. And I found, you know, it was it was fascinating, right? Because the parents weren't exactly asking me about how do I deal with my child being stigmatized? They were taught, they talked a lot about how um, if they had a child in a larger body, especially people who had, you know, multiple children, and maybe one was in a smaller body, one was in a larger body, there was some body diversity among the children. And of course, the their doctor is fear-mongering them around the larger body child. And so they're terrified and they feel debilitated by, they want to practice food positivity. They don't want their kids to have an eating disorder. That's their number one goal. These parents who are in this session because their families had eating disorders and they didn't want to pass it on. Um, And so you know, and, and they felt like they couldn't practice it because their doctor had made them feel so afraid of the long-term health outcomes of their child in a larger body. And so they would, they would ask questions like, my child wants to eat dessert. I'm really horrified. It scares me. Like you could feel that their nervous system was activated by their child asking if there was going to be dessert. And just kind of lowering the stakes for them, just kind of sort of saying like, these are the principles of food positivity, right? The principles are that all food is good food. We have a variety of food. We have autonomy over food. So those are some of like the principles. Um, And that we do not selectively practice this. It is not a weight-based belief system. Regardless of your weight, this is what we practice. We understand that this is good for people in all bodies. So it was really powerful to kind of just, again, lower the stakes for, for these parents. Um, uh, so, so, so I guess like some of the intervention is really just teaching them, you know, per, giving permission, teaching them some of these principles and also again, kind of grounding, like, I mean, I, I want to get to the question of bullying and stigma in a second, but but grounding, and this is something that I often do with both adults and people who are working, people who are there to work with their kids or they're there to work on them themselves. I'm like, I just want to be clear that this, the Center for Disease Control ha- very clearly states that our overall health is 70% social determinants over which we have no control. And that 30% of, of like sort of our individual determinants. So like our overall health is comprised of social determinants of health and individual determinants of health. So social determinants of health are truly the things that you can't control. Um, where you grew up, whether you have access to clean water. These are all societal things, right? Like either the system is working for you in that area where you grew up or it's not. You can't control that. Um, and so that's the social determinant side. That's 70% of our overall health. And then the remaining 30% is individual determinants. And within individual determinants um, is genetics as well as individual practices, like how we eat, how we move, whether we have like a, a meditative mental health focused practice, whether we are like have access to a therapist, right? All these different kinds of individual determinants. And again, within that remaining 30%, 
probably the lion's share is genetics. Probably the lion's share is genetics. And so um, what we're looking at, right, is a pie of health at where we in America have been taught that 100% of that pie is whether we're eating lettuce or not, whether we're eating like certain types of food or not, and whether or not we are exercising. So I'm like, that belief that you've been taught is anti-scientific. There is no data, no data that substantiates this cultural belief, which unfortunately, frankly, has also been adopted by doctors. So, um, you know, I'm like, I just kind of, I'm like, let's just, we have to ground the reality that what we really have control over is a very small slice of a pie. That doesn't mean that slice of the pie doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we like, you know what I mean? Like you, you can do whatever you want with that information, but you deserve to know the truth. And that's the truth. When it comes to the issue of children in larger bodies experiencing, and I, I don't love using the word bullying because I don't think that it actually is a severe enough word um, for something that causes lifelong negative outcomes. Um, and beliefs that lead to everything from like poorer sexual decision-making to like, you know, increased likelihood of being in like an abusive relationship, right? Like I just, it's like, I'm like, bull I mean, I, I, I'm just like, I don't know if that's the word that I should use. I also think that, that bullying sort of feels like it creates a sense that it's sort of, um, a ch like a childhood rite of passage or something like that. And I think the last thing I'm going to say is like bullying specifically almost always targets the very people that society is stigmatizing bullies don't just bully any old person right like I mean there's a reason why like straight white teenage boys are not getting bullied at the rate <laughs> that like people of color women you know fat kids right? like are getting bullied so anyway uh but but all that to say like you know when it comes to that matter around children being stigmatized at school it, again, you, it really very easily, you start to see the limitations of personal resiliency and how much a person can do, right? Because absent, uh, absent a world in which fat people are not being stigmatized, children are of course picking up the fact that, you know, being in a larger body means in our culture that you get to be a target for social punishment, that you get to be a target for teasing and verbal abuse and all of these kinds of things. And so I think parents are in a really intense bind. And I think what's, what's so challenging about it is the best, I mean, I feel like in some ways, right, the best thing that, that a parent can do is to equip a child with a sense of confidence a sense of like the fact that body positivity or like body diversity is a really positive thing. Um, a sense that there's nothing wrong with their body, regardless of what the size of their body is. And, and I mean that, and even that as powerful as that is, has its limitations. Right. Um, so I often, whenever I'm advising parents, it's very similar. It's similar. Like, you know, it's unfair that you're in this position. It's unfair that your child is in this position. There's only so much that you're going to be able to do. You need to figure out and sit down. I would recommend with your kid and sort of talk about what's happening. Talk about how you can discuss this matter with 
teachers or with authority figures, as well as what you want to say to the person who is stigmatizing you um, and kind of, and, and have like an open dialogue about it. But it's just so challenging because I even, even as I'm like, I can't think of anything better besides literally committing your life to being in the classroom, to having meetings every day or weekly with the teacher, with the administration, right? Like, like anything that's within a normal scope of like what parents can do, considering how much stuff parents have to do all the time, short of giving over your life to trying to like protect your kid from fat shaming, um, that's the best thing I can come up with. And, and I, 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 I know that it's not a great answer. It, again, I feel, I feel like my breath is sort of taken away. It is an answer. Is it a great answer? It is, it is the answer. There's no great, whatever it is. This is, this is the answer, which is, which is hard. It's a hard answer. That's what I want to say. We're going to have to end in a few minutes. I want to, change directions for a second. And I want to ask you a question. And this is really out of my own personal curiosity. So um, I, I saw you a few months ago in New York and, and we were at an event together. And I had mentioned to you about your TEDx talk that you had done a while ago. And um, I, I think I said to you, like, it, like, I, it's just, it is amazing. It is amazing. And I know you've done a lot of work since then. So I don't want you to think that I'm like, oh, that Ted talk you did. But first of all, along with all of your work, I'm going to highly encourage everybody to watch your TEDx talk. Can you, without giving anything away, talk about how you came up with the beginning and do you know what I'm referring to I guess I'm going to be giving things away how did you come up with your the beginning of your TED talk um it was it's funny because it was like kind of a last minute decision um I it was real that that TED talk was so that fascinating I mean it was just I have I kind of want to give you a little bit of behind the scenes So it was wild because it's like, you know, they invited me to do the TED talk. They knew the work that I did. And yet I think they were really threatened by it. Like they understood the, the vitality of it. They understood that it was a form of disruption, but I think they were really terrified about what I was actually proposing. So for example, the person who was my coach for the TED talk, he suggested that I start the talk sharing my private medical information that was meant to show that I was quote unquote healthy enough to make the claim that fat people should deserve human rights. So, and he was like, yeah, you can just share your blood pressure. You can share your health status. You can share that you don't, or you don't have this and that and this and that, which is associated with being, again, very presumptuous. Like I haven't told him any of this stuff, right? Like, I'm like, I haven't shared any of my medical information. You're just sort of presuming that like, because you experience me as, as like, whatever, like maybe I have high energy and I'm smart. You're just presuming that I, that I'm, that I don't have any of these things. Right. But like, so it was really fascinating, both from like a, a, like, you would never ask someone who you didn't experience as inferior to, to disclose 
uh, private medical information. Um, but you think it's okay for me. And I mean, and also for me, I was like, that is not the work that I'm doing. I am not saying that if you, as long as you are healthy by arbitrary and archaic medical standards, then you deserve human rights. That's not how human rights work. <laughs> so it's just the fun. I mean, it was like the fundamental misunderstanding of my work and it just happens all of the time. And it's so banana cuckoo pants. I'm like, have you heard of human rights? Okay, we're on the same page. You can visualize what that means. Okay, so what are not, what is the number one thing human rights are not? They are not conditional. And I know it's just like so wild to me that like really smart people just don't understand this. Um, anywho, so I was like, um, so he suggested that I start that way. And I was like, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm also like, um, I have, an advanced degree. Those are my bona fides. I don't need, you don't need to know my private medical information. Those are not my bona fides to be taken seriously. So um, it was this fascinating thing where like, I'm doing the work. They've invited me to do this. They're clearly really threatened by what I am suggesting. Um, and then I, so like we've gone through these multiple rounds of kind of like, you know, they're, they're really trying to get me to, to be less radical, to sort of present less radical ideas. Um, and, and I'm sort of pushing back. I even, and, and the sort of like, I, I, I think, I don't know. I don't think there's anything wrong with spoiling it. Is it okay to just spoil? Cause it feels just, weird talking around. Just it. spoil it. And, and I just, <laughs> I want to say that the first time I saw it before you spoil it, I was like, I wanted to like stand on my chair when you came out and you're like, I'm, Virgie Tovar and I was like <laughs> so it's I was like this is the greatest thing so share it share it yeah so we we decided to open up this the talk with a friend of mine who's a thin person so she has some of the same character like we're both Latin she has long black hair I have long black hair um so we had some similar kind of um characteristics but she's you, slender you even, you even wore similar outfits exact same yeah. color I was like yeah exactly yeah everything okay keep going keep going she had fake glasses she doesn't wear glasses so I had fake glasses that I got for her to wear so she kind of looked like me wearing a very similar outfit um and uh and got up there and she and she starts talking she's like my name is Virgie Tovar um, I am, uh, and you know, an expert in this area, I'm going to be talking with you about weight stigma and, you know, and all, and, and then, and then she kind of shares some introductory information. And then she says, would you still take me seriously? Would you still believe me if instead of this size, I were a much larger size? And then that's when she exits the stage and I come back on and I come on and I do the same spiel. I'm like, I'm Virgie Tovar. <laughs> I was like, I was at a concert. I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. So it was like kind of, I was hoping to illustrate in real time how stigma works, like how you have this perception, um, what your, what your sort of visceral experience is of seeing one thin person and then a fat person saying the exact same thing. Um, and, and leading up to that, you know, I, it was so interesting because the person who 
was my double, the thin version of me. Uh, <laughs> she came to a couple of rehearsals. And again, she's working with this coach who has been acting like a fat phobe this entire time. And I still have to kind of maintain a collegial vibe because I'm committed to doing this thing. And in the meeting, he is giving me basically fat phobic feedback. And she raises her hand <laughs> and she actually steps up and advocates as a thin person for how ridiculous he is behaving. And it's like, it was like somehow the crowdsourced effect of like, I'm giving you this feedback. And then this person who hasn't been here ever is, is and, and who is thin and has the credibility of a thin person, um, but I don't have as a fat person, uh, is now reflecting to you how inappropriately you are behaving. And so it was this really, there was again, so much going on in the background and it was her, it was her kind of advocacy and intervention that really kind of got him to give in to what I was saying. <laughs> it was just really powerful. It, it was, it's so powerful because again, you are, this is the living and breathing example of what you are trying to talk about, like, here are the biases, here are the phobias, here is how I don't get treated like other people. And it was happening right there while you're getting ready to present a talk on it. I know. It's like, the, it was kind of like inception where you're like, I'm living this on multiple levels. Like I'm <laughs> living this metaphor. And there's like Russian nesting dolls. There's levels of like how I'm living the very experience that I'm portraying, <laughs> you know? So I also wanted to say to everybody, and again, Virgie, I've seen you in a lot of stuff, so I don't want you to think that this, but th there was something about this TED Talk that I was like, oh, it's awesome. I want everybody to watch it to the very, very end, even when you start walking off stage, because you tell a story about somebody and in the story there is a man carrying a parasol and as you walk off the stage there is a man running behind you carrying a parasol it was amazing I was like this is a great TED talk so I I'm sorry that I'm all like it was I, I don't mean to be like all fanning over you for this but I just <laughs> I, I loved it so much and especially that at the very end so I just want to say that everyone needs to see it Thank you. <laughs> okay. As much as I hate to say it, we are going to have to wind down. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share? And I know that's a big question because there's a lot <laughs> to share. <laughs> anything else? But is there anything before we end? I'm kind of thinking about the, the theme of recovery, you know, and kind of thinking about like, what does it look like to kind of recover from fat phobia while we're still living in fat phobia. I think about recovery, right? Like, and, and like, what are the conditions of recovery? First, like for some people, like I have, I have a, an abusive childhood, you know? So, so like recovery is like, okay, recognizing first and foremost that that's, I'm never going to be a child again. That experience is never going to happen again. I'm never going to be completely voiceless and without autonomy and without resources. Um, so when I recover from that experience, I know that it's never going to happen again. And I can be safely, securely living in that knowledge. And with fat phobia, 
as but similarly with eating disorders, what does recovery look like when the very, when the triggers and the trigger, which is like a culture that is so rigid about bodies is all around me every day. I'm trying to recover while new abuses are being piled on. And while I'm in, while I'm like triggered, you know, <laughs> and so it, it's really, it's like such a, it's such a testament to like the power of human, the human heart and the human spirit that people are trying to undertake that work in this kind of very hostile environment. And, and I think on the one hand, there are limitations to trying to heal in a culture that is so aggressively awful towards people who are in larger bodies. Um, and on the other hand, I have firsthand seen the power of doing that healing, even with the limitations that are all around us right now. And so I just kind of, I kind of wanted to really name that despite the reality that we've been talking about this whole hour, that there's still, I still have this endless wellspring of hope for people on larger bodies to be able to heal even within the worst possible conditions, right? Even as this issue persists. Um, so I just kind of wanted to end on that like hopeful note and to kind of really recognize that I'm someone who went from, you know, every day of my life, I used to wake up and my first thought was, I hate this body. I can't believe I'm still on this body to someone who, you know, that thought is nowhere on the horizon to someone who like, you know, who really loves the life that she has, who really cares for and feels a sense of protection over her body. Um, and who, um, you know, has so much joy and has so much more room for joy since I stopped hating my body. And so I just kind of wanted to end with that. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you ended with that. I, I also want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being on the podcast. I'm grateful to have your voice, to have your message. So I, I also want to say thank you for being here, Virgie. It means so much to me and everyone who's going to be hearing it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Thank you.